Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God. Thank you for joining me. The Poem of the Man-God is a private revelation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by the visionary Maria Valtorta. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus beginning with the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closing with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus, messages for the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of the Second World War, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published, without her name, shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share the poem of the man-god with the world. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have, and if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man-God, Book 1, Number 138, A New Disciple, Departure for Galilee. My Lord, I have done nothing but my duty towards God, towards my Master, and towards honesty of conscience. I watched that woman while she was my guest, and I always found her to be honest. She may have been a sinner, but she is not now. Why should I investigate on a past which she has repented, and for which she has atoned? My sons are handsome young men, but she has never shown her face, which is really beautiful. Neither did she let them hear her voice. I can say that I heard the tone of her silver voice when she shouted because she had been wounded. Otherwise, the little she asked for behind her veil, and she always asked me, or my wife, was whispered in such a low voice that we could hardly understand her. You can see how prudent she was, too. When she was afraid that her presence might be harmful to anyone, she went away. I had promised to defend her and to help her, but she did not avail herself of the opportunity. No, a fallen woman does not behave like that. I will pray for her, as she asked me, also without this souvenir. Keep it, Master. Give it in alms, for her good. If it is given by you, it will obtain peace for her. The steward speaks respectfully to Jesus. He is a stout, handsome man with an honest countenance. Behind him there are six hefty young men, all like their father, six truly intelligent faces, and there is also his wife, a little gentle, slender woman, who is listening to her husband as if he were a god, continuously nodding assent. Jesus takes the gold bracelet and hands it to Peter, saying, It is for the poor. He then addresses the steward. Not everybody in Israel is upright as you are. You are wise because you can tell good from evil, and you follow uprighteousness without counting the cost, whether it is profitable to do so from a human point of view. In the name of the Eternal Father, I bless you, your children, your wife, and your house. Persevere in such spiritual proclivity, and the Lord will always be with you and you will have eternal life. I am going away now, but that does not mean that we shall not meet again. I will come back, and you can always come to me. God grant you peace for what you have done for me, and for that poor creature. The steward, his children and wife, kneel down and kiss the feet of Jesus, who, after a last blessing gesture, 
goes away with his disciples towards the village. And what if those ugly people are still there? asks Philip. It is not possible to forbid people speaking in the streets, replies Judas of Alpheus. No, but we are anathema to them. Oh, never mind. Does it worry you? It only worries me because the master does not want any violence, and as they know, they take advantage of it, grumbles Peter through his beard, and he certainly thinks that Jesus, who is speaking to Simon and the Iscariot, does not hear him. But Jesus does hear, and he turns round, partly grave, partly smiling, and says, Do you think that I would be victorious if I used violence? That is a poor human system, and serves only temporarily for human victories. How long does oppression last? Until by itself it causes reactions in the people held down, which reactions accumulating form greater violence that suppresses the previous oppression. I do not want a temporary kingdom. I want an eternal one, the kingdom of heaven. How many times have I told you? How many times will I have to tell you? Will you ever understand? Yes, the moment will come when you will understand. When, my lord, I am in haste to understand that I may be less ignorant, says Peter. When? When you are ground like corn between the stones of sorrow and repentance. You could, nay, you should understand before, but to do so you should overcome your human nature and let your souls free. But you are not able to make such an effort against yourselves. But you will understand. You will understand. And then you will also understand that I could not make use of violence, a human means, to establish the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the Spirit. In the meantime, do not be afraid. Those men who are worrying you will not do anything. It is enough for them to have driven me away. But was it not easier to tell the head of the synagogue to come to the steward's house or to wait for us on the main road? Oh, what a wise man my Thomas is today. Of course it was not easy, or rather, it was easier but not fair. He showed heroism for me and was abused in his house because of me. It is just that I should go to his house to comfort him. Thomas shrugs his shoulders and speaks no more. Here is the village, a large, very rural one with houses in the orchards which are all bare at present, and there are many sheepfolds. It must be a suitable place for sheep-rearing, because there are sheep bleating everywhere, coming from or going to the pastures on the plain. There is the usual crossroad, with the square and the fountain in the center. The house of the head of the synagogue is there. The door is opened by an elderly woman, whose face is clearly marked by tears, and yet, when she sees the Lord, she has a reaction of joy and she prostrates herself, blessing. Stand up, mother. I have come to say goodbye to you. Where is your son? He is in there. And she points to a room at the end of the house. Have you come to console him? I have not been able. So, is he depressed? Is he sorry he defended me? No, Lord, but he has a scruple. But he will tell you. I will call him. No, I will go. You wait here. Let us go, woman. Jesus walks across the hall, only a few yards long. He pushes the door and goes into the room. 
he goes slowly towards a man who is sitting bent towards the floor engrossed in anguished meditation peace to you timotheus what you lord yes it is i why are you so sad lord i they told me that i have sinned they told me that i am anathema i examine myself but i do not appear to be so but they are the holy ones in israel and i am a poor head of the synagogue they are certainly right and now i dare not look up at the angry face of god and i have such need in this hour i was serving him with true love and i was endeavoring to make him known i will now be deprived of that opportunity because the sanhedrin will certainly curse me but what is your trouble asked jesus that you are no longer the head of the synagogue or that it is no longer possible for you to speak of god it is the latter that afflicts me master i think that you mean whether i am sorry for me not being the head of the synagogue because of the benefit and honor one gets from it i do not care for that i have only my mother who was born at era where she has a little house she has a roof there and what to live on i am young i will work but i will never dare speak of god again for i have sinned why have you sinned they say that i am accomplice of lord do not make me speak no i will speak no i will not mention it either but you and i know their charges and we know they are not true therefore you have not sinned i am telling you then i can still look up at the almighty can i what son jesus is extremely kind when he bends over the man who has suddenly stopped speaking as if he were frightened what my father is anxious that you should look at him he wants you to look at him and i want your heart and your thoughts yes the sanhedrin will strike you i am stretching out my arms to you and i say come do you want to be my disciple i see in you what is necessary to be a worker of the eternal master come to my vineyard do you really mean that master mother did you hear i am happy mother i bless that suffering because it gives me this joy oh let us make merry mother i will go with the master and you will go back to your house i will come at once my lord who have banished all my fears my sorrow and my fear of god no you will wait the word of the sanhedrin with a peaceful heart without hatred stay in your position as long as you are left in your place you will then reach me at nazareth or capernaum good-bye peace be with you and with your mother are you not staying in my house no i will come to your mother's house it is not a very loyal village i will teach them to be faithful Goodbye, mother. Are you happy now? Jesus caresses her, as he normally does with elderly women, whom I notice he calls mother. I am happy, Lord. I brought up a son for the Lord. The Lord now takes him from me to be the servant of his Messiah. Blessed be the Lord, and blessed be you, who are his Messiah. Blessed be the hour you came. Blessed be my offspring, who has been called to your servant. Blessed be the mother who is as holy as Anna of Elkanah. Peace be with you. Jesus goes out, followed by mother and son. He joins his disciples, 
says goodbye, and once again starts his return journey towards Galilee. And the vision ends. This is another excerpt from My Way of Life from the Confraternity of the Precious Blood, Chapter 2, Knowledge and Love of God. There is a special comfort in appreciating God's knowledge of us and of our world. It is a dreadful thing to be totally unknown. The bleakest riches of loneliness do not quite touch such fearful isolation. For however lonely we are, we are among our fellows who at least know what we are, for all their disregard of who we are or where our dreams are calling us. Even when loneliness is routed by the eager companionship of love, we writhe in an agony beyond human belief of not being known enough and not knowing enough. In this sense, we are always alone. Alone because we cannot say all that is within us, cannot see all that is in the one we love. The fear of discovery that haunts our secret hours is a terror of inimical or indifferent hearts. It is only to our enemies that we fear to be known. Where love and understanding are guaranteed, it is not pain but blessed relief to have even our most despicable weakness seen and ministered to. That all things are naked and open to his eyes is not to our terror but to the banishment of our deepest loneliness. It is to our constant comfort to remember that he reaches even to the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints also and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature invisible in his sight. Hebrews 4 nor is this the wishful thinking of a lonely heart seeking refuge in hopes no more solid than the walls of a dream. Anything less than the illimitable wisdom of God is unthinkable. God knows how far his hand can reach. Everything that is, everything that is escapes annihilation only in so far as the hand of God supports it. He knows the shimmering reflections of divine beauty in the pool of creation, knowing that divine beauty so perfectly. Not because they are, says St. Augustine, does God know all creatures spiritual and temporal, but because he knows them, therefore they are. For ourselves we wander through the days of our life discovering, with a child's wonder, the things that God has made. But God's knowledge is not the accumulation of discovery. The command of his reason was the fertile word at which all that is leaped from nothingness into being. He is the divine craftsman not to be surprised by any detail of the work he has so wisely wrought. Eternity is a cloak wrapped about and enclosing yesterday, today, and tomorrow in one moment that never ends. Of all this, God's single glance, which is yet eternal, misses nothing. What he has made, what he could have made, the evil that is a tear in the fabric of the good, even what could have been and would have been had we not failed him. Everything is naked and open to his eyes, down to the last beat of a heart, the first fluttering of desire, the strong steps of hope. All the ways of a man are open to his eyes, says Proverbs 16. 
Our feet cannot carry us beyond the vision of God. The most wayward heart is still within reach of his understanding eyes. Triumph and failure, faded dreams, the ebbed courage, the flicked insults of ingratitude, and all the tantrums of childish rebellion do not have to be explained to God. He knows us, knows better than we can ever know, and loves us infinitely from the infinite depth of that understanding knowledge. His image is in us, however deeply buried under the debris of our living, and heaven is never beyond the reach of our fingers. God's knowledge begins to take on its true stature in our eyes when we see his mind as the source of all that can be known, as the fountain from which gushes forth all reality that, known by us, gives us our proud grasp of truth. The truth we possess is a humble thing, no more, in fact, than the mirroring of the real world about us. When we substitute the product of our minds for the products of God's mind, we fashion a world of fancy to replace the world of things as they are. By this, we cut ourselves off from truth, retiring from the real world into one of our own making, isolating ourselves in solitary confinement. When we see the real world in grotesque, distorted fashion, we are in error. To feed the minds of other men that distorted view is a surer guarantee of blindness than plucking out their eyes. We do not create truth. We discover what is real. It is God who is truth and the source of truth. The infinite reality which is God can be known infinitely and is so known by the infinite mind of God. It is not so much that God possesses truth. Rather, he is truth, infinite truth, creative truth. The world of reality is real in so far as it mirrors the divine mind, thus being true to itself. We get our insights into divinity by mirroring, in turn, the reality which hangs in instant dependence from the mind of God. The source of reality is the ultimate source of the truth of things as they are. To cut off the source of truth, denying God, is to summon up an unreal reality as monstrously impossible as the uncaused effect that so satisfies the sick minds of our day. There is tragic loss in this casting off of truth's beauty. The tragedy mounts when we realize that this precludes our ever coming into contact with the world outside ourselves. In this condition, we shall never see a single thing as it really is. The supremely tragic note, however, comes from the fact that this blindness is self-inflicted in the very same in the very name of the truth whose light is being extinguished with laborious care men lift some of the mysterious outer wrappings of reality and their eyes are caught by the beauty of the vision of complex order and smooth harmony there is wonder and beauty here indeed something of the wonder and beauty of god the fallen angels were caught in just such an enchantment by the vision of their own beauty. To refuse, as the angels did, to look beyond that first glimpse of reality is to make the whole thing unreal and put an end to the pursuit of the full vision of truth. Until truth gives light to a man's mind, his heart is immobilized more effectively than the feet of a man in the pitch blackness of a strange place. 
Unless the mind of a man is nourished on truth, his heart is shrunken and starved. If error, not truth, is the diet of the mind, then the heart gorges itself on poison and is doomed to bloated frustration and the writhings of despair. We can reach out only for what we know. If the light of knowledge be false, we can make nothing but missteps. Our hearts can be aflame only with the fuel ordered by our minds, nor can we change ourselves, adapting mind and heart to any light, to any diet. Only truth is light for the eyes and goal for the heart. We are real. We live in a world of real things. Our hearts are not to be nourished on fantasies or nightmares, but on realities. Beauty and goodness come into a man's life only in the train of truth. Even the enemies of beauty and goodness, making their bulgarious entry, must wear the disguise of the beautiful and the good. Perhaps the mind may never see through those disguises, but the heart of a man cannot be deceived perpetually. Ultimately, the diet of evil, however good it is made to seem, sickens a man, and ugliness revolts his soul with its loathsomeness. It is to just such sickness and revulsion that leaders and teachers of men condemn the little ones when they deny them the truth. And God is truth. Only our very being is more fundamental to us than truth. We must have truth. Only then can we begin to live. Only then can we rest in beauty's contemplation and have our hearts first stirred, then filled with good. It was the Word, the wisdom of God, who became man and lived amongst us, in order, as he himself said, that men might have the truth and the truth might make them free. He was, he said, the way, the truth, and the life. He lived for truth and died rather than mouth the lie that would deny his divinity. Without truth there is no way for a man's feet to walk, no light for his eyes to see, no goal for his living. He is a slave of the lie that has usurped the throne of truth. Perhaps truth has been denied him with ruthless malice. Perhaps the denial came through a teacher's naive, wide-eyed, well-meaning stupidity. Perhaps it was the individual's own cowardly fear of his own humanity and its demands for courageous, courageous living. Whatever the reason, culpable or not, malicious or well-meant, the utter fundamental destruction of the lives of men is exactly the same. We must have truth. Is God alive? This seems a silly question in the light of God's knowledge and truth. It is plain enough to us that a dead man cannot follow an argument nor give a rebuttal, a fact that makes abuse of the dead a safe outlet for a coward's malice. Only the living can understand. Yet again and again men have played the game of living with a dead God, making him a symbol, an impersonal cosmic thing, a promise of the future or a product of the hands or the minds of men. It is very much to the point in our time to ask, is God alive? And if he is, how much of life is there in him? The strong pulse of the sea the waters of a mountain stream scampering as if for warmth, or the smooth strength of a broad river are all in striking contrast to the waters of a stagnant pond.
pond. We speak with reason of living waters. The water in the river, brook, and sea does look alive, for it is never still, and it is activity, after all, that is our measure of life. If that activity is from without, we know that we are not watching the progress of a living thing, but a likeness of life that can be enchanting or foreboding. The violent rush of storm clouds has all the air of a personal attack, while the carefree patch of white idling its way across the summer sky seems an open invitation to our own dawdling. The persistent tap of rain on a window is not a demand for entry, it just sounds like that, and the harsh anger of a pounding sea has no life in it, though we see it as a living threat. All these are likenesses of life, but they are dead things, driven from the outside. Life's activity is always from within. On the other hand, to see a man driven is to see the likeness of death in the living. Gusts of anger, the dominance of drugs, or the escape of drink drain the life out of a man's actions because they take over command and drive him to things he detests. The inherent horror of a concentration camp is not different from the fundamental repugnance inseparable from all slavery. These things make dead men of the living without killing them. They drive men from without, along paths not of their choosing. Life is activity from within. Dionysus, picturing it as a trumpet blast let loose on the world, says, The last echo of life is heard in the plants. Certainly it is true that we easily recognize higher levels of life, and precisely on this basis of activity as we step from the plant to the animal, to the human heights. Not only is there more activity as we go up the scale, the activity is more truly from within and for the inner perfection of the living agent. A man has more of life than an animal, not because he can run faster and farther, not because he can see more clearly or hear more acutely, but because he can understand and love, because he can reach out to welcome all the universe into his mind and can embrace or reject any single thing in it. He is not driven, and his knowledge and his love stay within his very self to his own perfection rather than flowing out of him for the nourishment of others. God is beyond all driving from without. His knowledge and love are perfectly within himself, in fact, his very self. He is the unmoved mover of all else, the source of all activity and its goal. Eternally and infinitely, intense knowledge and love is the very essence of divinity, an activity of intellect and will that is eternally at white heat, not cooling, not needing refueling, without fatigue or surcease. It is not that God has life, he is life. Not that he shows activity, but that he is pure act. The living God who is life itself, and in whom we live and move and have our being. In a very real sense, all living things live by the life of God, sharing something of that divinely intense living power as a gift lent for a time to the portrayal of divinity before the eyes of men. A dead God is a contradiction in terms. To deny God life is to invoke death on all the universe, to move in a realm of shadows more ghastly than a world of the dead who still live.
and we'll break there.